Eternal security. Once saved, always saved. What does that mean? Is it true? Let's talk about all of that next on today's broadcast of Truth For Today. Join us. From Valley Bible Church in Hercules, this is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. Welcome to the program. Can a true believer ever be lost? Now that's the question we're examining here as we come to the close of our series, Life in the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 is where we're at, and we'll find answers to this question out of verses 31 through 39. Can a true believer ever be lost? And what does once saved, always saved mean? How do we flesh all of this out according to the scriptures? Well, let's join Pastor Phil Howard for today's broadcast and find out. Turn, if you will, to Romans 8, and, uh, and let's just pick up verse 28, and let me read it. You can't improve the Word. It's not the sermon that changes us. It's the Word of God, right? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So God has a divine plan. Does he not? Ephesians 1 enumerates this in more detail. For those God foreknew, and we found out last week, it means to forelove, to make his own. It's more than just previous knowledge. It's it's the speaking of a particular group, his own. He foreknew them. He says of the unsaved, I never knew you. Of his own, I knew you. He also predestined, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we get five undeniable affirmations. We were uh, foreknown, predestined. He also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And the word you want to get there is that it's a past tense. It's done in the mind of God. God is certain about you going to make it. What then? Five unanswerable questions he's going to ask. Now watch these. Five questions. What then shall we say in response to this? First question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the idea is who shall succeed against us. There's plenty of folks against us. The whole demonic world is against us. Satan's against us. But the idea is who can be against us and prevail? First question he asks. He goes on. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Second question. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now, get the logic. God has already done the hardest thing he could ever do regarding you, and that is he sacrificed his son for you. He spared not his son, and that word spare not comes right out of the Genesis motif in Genesis 22 that Abraham would not spare 
Isaac. He took him up to Mount Moriah and was willing, and by faith he slew him already. But by faith he saw him risen. And, but Christ, the Father, did not spare the Son regarding you. Now think it through. Is there anything in your future that will be too hard for God to do if he's already sacrificed his Son? If he didn't spare Christ, surely he'll, he's got other good things for you. The hard part has already been done. Third question, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who can bring a charge of indictment? It is God who justifies, declared as righteous. Fourth question, who is he that condemns? Who comes up to accuse us? Primarily Satan accuses us all the time. And once in a while, our family and neighbors and, and your own heart does a pretty good job of accusing you. Who is he that condemns? Brings a verdict of guilty with judgment. Guilt deserving penalty. Who does this? It's not Christ, for he died. And what did he die for? He died for everything you've been charged for. Everything wrong about us, he died for, right? More than that, who is raised to life. Now, what's interesting here, the resurrection of Christ is the living proof that God accepted his work on the cross and he's now carrying on a ministry in the third heaven for his own on the basis of his cross work so that when you're accused by Satan for committing some sin, Christ can plead his cross work for you. That's your defender. That's your defense, not that you didn't do it. Don't waste any time denying what you did. <laughs> Admit that. But he is pleading. His resurrected life is pleading his cross work. It was like when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. If he died in there, what would have happened? The sacrifice is not accepted and the sin of the nation has not been covered. But when he comes dancing out, as it were, I'm alive, he is shouting something. The sacrifice was accepted. The atonement has been made. And my very life shouts to the fact the Father is pleased. That's what Christ's living session in heaven says. I'm pleased with what you did about their sins on the cross. And he's alive to tell the story. He's at the right hand of God. And he is also interceding for us. So the fourth question is, who is he that condemns? It won't be Christ. He cannot. He's your defender. And the fifth question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he mentions uh, suffering. Uh, he's going to mention uh, uh, supernatural powers. And he's going to mention all kinds of hardships, shall trouble or hardships or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, and that first angels is good angels, nor bad angels, neither the present. Hey, what about the future? Nothing in your future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. God said this. No theologian said it. God said it. Why did he say it? Because it's true. Now let's look at a a very controversial subject. I'm going to look at it this week and next week. The Word of God is profitable for teaching, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. First thing he does, he wants to teach us. And uh, I want to deal the next two weeks with this subject, can a true believer ever be lost? Can a true believer ever be lost? Here, we're hearing what God says he'll do to preserve the believer so that the believer will be kept. There's two sides. There's a truth that when it came out of the Reformation in the 1600s at the council, the Senate of Dort, uh, the debate was, and I, is that out of uh, the followers of Jacob Arminius, who uh, heads up Arminian theology, they came with five complaints against the reformers in the 1500s. And one of their uh, statements was that one who has put faith in Christ can ultimately uh, fall, can ultimately commit apostasy, and could possibly be eliminated. And uh, you could read this in any theology book, The Remonstrance, uh, Jacob Arminius, a true believer, true follower of Christ, and so that there was a whole wing of the church who said that salvation is not necessarily permanent once you have it. You can lose it. Uh, the reformers taught this, that those whom God has truly chosen, elected, foreknown, predestined, uh, they will give evidence of being God's chosen that they will persevere no matter what trials, no matter even of lapses, there may be backslidings, there may be failings, there may be sin, but they will, uh, overall, they're going to persevere in the faith. No matter ups and downs, no matter, uh, you know, it, they weren't saying you'd be sinless, none of us are, but that the sheep in their nature will keep pursuing Christ, no matter how much they fail. Well, there was a split there in the church, and you wind up having the reformers on one side, and then you had uh, the group of uh, Jacob Arminius who were really, in some ways, a part of the Reformation. Out of this, uh, Lutherans came to believe uh, what Luther said, that justification could be lost, and uh, believed strongly in salvation, but uh, thought you could lose it. Listen to the article, what the uh, 
reformers said at the Council of Dort about security. You see it in your notes right there at the bottom, the canons of Dort. Let me read it to you. But God, who is rich in mercy, according to his unchangeable purpose of election. Now, whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist, you believe in election. You just believe it's based on different things. Arminian says it's based upon foreseen faith. The Calvinist says God chose you and he enabled you to believe. So, but you wind up, either group has got to admit to some form of elect. God chooses people. Does not wholly withdraw the Holy Spirit from his own people, even in their grievous falls, nor suffers them to proceed so far as to lose the grace of adoption. That is, he adopted you as a son and forfeit the state of justification or to commit the sin unto death or against the Holy Spirit. Nor does he permit them to be totally deserted and to plunge themselves into everlasting destruction. But overall, known Christendom, the majority would say, once you put faith in Christ, it is no guarantee that you'll be in heaven. If you lapse in the meantime, Roman Catholicism says, absolutely, a mortal sin, and you eliminate justification that you received at infant baptism. Absolutely. You need a papal absolution. You can be excommunicated and put into hell by the church, for they have the keys to unloose and to bind, part of their theology. Lutherans, you can lose your salvation. Uh, Wesleyan groups, uh, the big fight of George Whitfield and John Wesley was over the matter of election, predestination, and that you can lose your salvation. Whitfield said you couldn't. Wesley said you could. Methodism, two forms of Methodism in England. There was the Arminian wing, of which the Wesleys were a part of, the Calvinistic wing, of which George Whitfield was a part of. So they were still Methodists, but they spread over this issue. So that probably the majority of Christianity says when you put faith in Christ, you better live it from then on, for when you stop living it in any form, you have forfeited your salvation. And I, I grew up in such circles because I grew up among Wesleyans. And so I know exactly uh, their heart, have no doubt about their salvation. It's just quite an experience. Theology can make a difference in the way you think and look out. For instance, when it's really storming, you might be scared to death of another universal flood. But my theology says there's a rainbow in the heavens and God will never flood the earth again like he did in the days of Noah. That gives me some comfort when I'm in a hurricane, let's say. Theology can comfort you or make you miserable. Now today what I would like to look at is those arguments for those of us who believe salvation is forever and that it will never be lost by those who are saved. I want to look at that today and I will not be able to cover everything in the notes, but I'll at least let you read it, look at it. Next week, I want to look at 
uh, arguments, I'll look at some of the arguments for those who say you can lose it, and the Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, and the big passages that are always used to say we can lose it. So we'll try to give a fair hearing, and next week we'll be looking at will the elect persevere, or you, do you just get eternally secure and you can live like hell? Which is anathema that you will be kept no matter how you live. That is never taught in Scripture. It is never taught in Scripture. So, uh, Romans 8 speaks for itself. Let's just begin a little theological journey. I want to look at the three members of the Godhead and what each of them do to guarantee the salvation of their own. We'll look at the Father, we'll look at the Son, look at the Spirit. When we look at the Father, let's just look at some of the promises God has given us about salvation. Then I want to just rehearse his purpose for us. Thirdly, the power he has pledged to us. Those three things, his promises, his purpose, his power. When I come to God the Son, what he's doing to take care of his own, his payment for your sin, and his prayers for you at the throne of heaven. Finally, the Holy Spirit's presence in us. What does the Spirit do in the heart of those who've been converted? Are you unchanged when you've come to Christ? Uh, does he give a new heart or does the old heart stay in? Does he give a new nature or does he not? Does he come in and regenerate us and give us new appetites, new desires that in spite of our failings and in spite of the journey, we continue no matter? Let's take some promises of God. Turn with me to John 5. John 5. I want you to see in the Bible because I don't want to talk you into anything you don't see in the Bible. Look at verse 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and may eventually be condemned. The eternal life he's talking about has a penalty aspect. It will not let you be condemned. Come under divine penalty. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he makes this astounding promise here that those who have eternal life will never in the future come into condemnation. That's a part of the eternal life gift. Well, turn to chapter 6, right across for you. Let's begin at verse uh, 35. Then Jesus declared, these are promises of God and of Christ in salvation. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never ekbalo. I will never cast out. It's not the idea, whoever comes to me, I won't shut out. That's not what he's saying. Whoever comes to me and gets into my family, I will never throw out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, hear me, hear Jesus, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the very last day. Verse 44 says, you can't come unless the Father draws you. 37 says, no one will come except the Father brings them. And Christ says, I will not lose any that the Father brings to me for salvation. Verse 39, does that seem evident? Is that in your Bible? Chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. See, there's that foreknown. I have an experiential knowledge of my own. I count them. I know them. And they won't follow me. They who what? They follow me. If you don't follow, you're not a sheep. If you don't follow, you're not a sheep. If you don't follow, you're not a sheep. So don't feel secure that you named his name, but you won't do a thing he says. You don't have eternal life. You've got a little religious itch that is not salvation. Those who know the shepherd follow him. This is perseverance. This is I'm not saved to live as I please. I'm saved to obey. I'm saved to follow the voice of the shepherd. Now he goes on to say, I am giving them eternal life. And they, and, and in the Greek it's strong, it's ume, it's a double negative. And they shall never, absolutely never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. All who? All those who would try to do the great snatch. He's greater than any snatching power. Okay? He's greater than anything that could, including you. Because often people say there's nothing that can snatch me out, but I can get out. But you've got to remember now that you're saved, you're not safe just in his hand. You've become a part of his hand. He baptized you into his body. You're a vital member of his body. Did you know that? First Corinthians 12. I'm a member of his body. I'm not just in his hand. But I am in his hand. And you see this picture? You're in Christ's hand in verse 28. 29, you're in the Father's hand. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one thing. They're not one person, but they're one thing. They share one spirit. The word's neuter. They're not one person. There's distinct persons, but one spirit. Now, get the picture. The picture is, I've got them in my hand, then the Father's hand. Romans chapter 8, such an amazing chapter, isn't it? so full of hope and encouragement for us as believers in Christ. This is Truth For Today, Pastor Phil Howard, our teacher and pastor here on the broadcast. To conclude our time together today, we would leave you with our contact information. 
For a copy of today's program or the series, ask for it by name, Life in Christ. Simply call or write to us. Our phone number is 855-833-9864. Again, that's 855-833-9864. For a copy of today's program, simply mention today's date. If you would like the set today's program was taken from, ask for it by name, Life in the Spirit. And for a gift of $15 or more, we'll send a copy your way. Now, if you would like the entire eight-set, 47-sermon series out of Romans, for a gift of $100 or more, we'll send that to you as well. And that's the complete series on Romans. Again, 47 sermons. And please bear in mind that your donations are tax-deductible, and they allow us to continue the ministry here on KFAX. In fact, as a TFT supporter or sustainer, we'll also include a quarterly newsletter for you a once-a-year special gift, and access to Take a Break with Pastor Phil, the weekly devotional audio video that we have available as well. Again, that's for our TFT sustainers. Ask for that when you contact us, 855-833-9864. Or you can write to us at 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue, Suite 278, Hercules, California. The zip code is 94547. For more information about us or Valley Bible Church, simply visit our website, valleybible.org. And we'd love to hear from you. Again, as always, as a sustainer of the program, as a partner with us, you're enabling us to continue the ministry of the gospel here on this radio station. And no gift is too small or too large. Please consider that as you contact us. And then come back and join us next time as we continue our studies here in God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you as you make Jesus Christ your truth for today.